Welcome to the podcast, From Crisis to Connection. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'll be bringing the professional perspective. I'm Jody Stewart, unlicensed wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, and neighbor, and I'll be bringing the regular everyday perspective. We are all about relationship recovery, and we'll tackle tough topics like infidelity, abuse, addiction, pornography, and betrayal trauma. We also focus on helping you build stronger connections in your most important relationships. So thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. Our guest today had what would have appeared on the surface as the fantasy life. He had money, he had titles, he had cars, he had women. But then one day it all came crashing down. And he realized that deep inside, he was miserable, lonely, and scared. He wondered, where did I go wrong? He said a lifetime of messages from society told him that if he had all those things, he'd be a real man, that he'd be happy. Well, it was all a lie. After lots of intense work and study and almost losing everything, he eventually climbed out of that dark place. In talking with others, he realized he wasn't alone. He realized that opening up and sharing his story, getting support, was one of the hardest things he's ever done, but it made such a difference in his healing, his recovery. Today, we interview a man by the name of Jason Portnoy. Jason is an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, and uh, actually began his career back at PayPal, working with some of the early tech icons like Elon Musk and Reid Hoffman. And he served as the first CFO of Palantir Technologies and Oak House Partners, top performing venture capital firm. In other words, he just was riding high. He had a lot of money, a lot of resources, and was living in such an unhealthy way and didn't even realize it until it all came crashing down. Through years and years of study and work and healing and recovery, he eventually decided to tell his story and wrote a book called Silicon Valley Porn Star. Now, Jason's not an actual porn star, but he'd certainly lived a life that was shameful and dark. And he wants to tell his story about his own personal and relational recovery from years of having sexual secrets. Please recognize that the book does have some language in it, but it does not have graphic depictions of sex. It just really shows the true consequences of keeping sexual secrets. Jason, in his writing and in his work, really emphasizes the importance of coming out of hiding, opening up, telling the truth, speaking out. We're both so inspired by his example and his willingness to be so open about something that most people would just want to keep secret and hide. Now, of course, we often talk about how not everyone is going to be called to tell their story publicly on a podcast, but openness and speaking the truth and coming out of the dark is a key component to healing from shame, from healing from addictions, compulsive and unwanted behaviors. It's critical. And Jason does a great job of modeling that. So we decided to interview him and he's been so gracious to come on here and talk about his story. And as with any personal recovery story, please recognize that sometimes it's normal to feel comparisons and criticisms. You may not agree with or do some of the things that he and his wife have done in their journey. Like the famous 12-step saying goes, take what you need and leave the rest for someone else. We really hope this interview helps strengthen your resolve to live a life of openness, of integrity, and to stay in the light. Please enjoy our interview with Jason Portnoy. Well, welcome, Jason. We're so thrilled to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Oh, good. Well, we really want to just jump right in and have our listeners, audience, just really get to know you a little bit. And I mean, it's all in your book, Silicon Valley Porn Star, 
It's your story. You've written it out and it's powerful. It's raw. Mm-hmm. And we'd love for you just to give us a just a brief introduction to your journey so that people can have a little context on who you are, where you've been, and why we're talking to you today. So do you mind just jumping right in? No, not at all. Not at all. Well, you know, thanks for having me here. I'm excited to have this conversation. And I wrote the book to try to help others, really. You know, I, I mm-hmm. went on this interesting journey and I'll, I'll share more about that. But by the time I got to the end of it, I felt like I want to be in service. What can I do to be in service? I can share this story. And hopefully people who are either trapped in some of the places I was trapped in can have some hope. Or mm-hmm. maybe it's a slight, you know, a little bit of a roadmap that someone can follow to, to get out of a dark place. And maybe for young people, it could be a cautionary tale of what not sure. to do. So there's sure. maybe it's a lot of preamble there. But so my name is Jason Portnoy. I, I grew up in New Jersey and I had kind of a normal suburban childhood felt like. My parents got divorced when I was young which also felt kind of normal. Divorce is pretty Mm -hmm. common. And I played soccer and loved to play outside, ride my bike. I was a Boy Scout, um, all of those things. So kind of, you know, what I felt was a pretty typical suburban lifestyle. Went off to college at the University of Colorado and studied chemical engineering. Had a great time in Boulder, Colorado. After that, went to graduate school at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. And I studied, it was kind of a, 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 a businessy degree for engineering students. It was called management science and engineering. It was really interesting, met, met some really interesting people. But the other interesting thing that happened was that it was the, the middle of the first dot-com boom in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got there in late 1999 and the first dot-com boom was in full swing. And after like three or four months, I noticed a lot of my classmates had prior work experience. And I wanted to get some experience and startups were hiring and I got hired at a startup company. And it turned out that company turned into PayPal. Yeah. (laughs) And I was kind of (laughs) fell into that kind of right place at the right time. Although I'd worked very hard to get myself into Stanford. So I, you know, I I deserve a little credit, but, (laughs) but really a lot of luck involved. And I wound up at this company, PayPal, working with people who've now become legendary. Peter Thiel mm-hmm. was the CEO when I started. Later, we merged with a company that Elon Musk had started, and then he became the CEO. And so I worked closely with Elon for a while. Um, Reed Hoffman, the gentleman who went on to start LinkedIn and do lots of other amazing things. He was there as an executive. Max Levchin, wow. another amazing entrepreneur, was one of the co-founders. The guys who started YouTube were there. Uh, the guys who started Yelp. It's the Wild West. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy, you know, after (laughs) PayPal, what this diaspora went on to do. And I always have to say this, if there's anyone I left out, I apologize because there's just so (laughs) many amazing companies that came out of that group. And so I'm there, I'm in Silicon Valley, you know, dropped out of Stanford to go work at this crazy startup company. It turns into PayPal. This amazing group of people. And I have a a girlfriend who then becomes my fiance mm. and everything just feels great. You know, everything I'm my, the trajectory of my life just feels amazing. It is going up and to the right, good schools, mm-hmm. good education, great job, making money, fiance, getting married, you know, starting my family, all of these things. But it turned out I had some secrets that I was keeping and mm. 
I wasn't well on the inside. So on the outside, it all looked great. But on the inside, I wasn't really well. And there were some cracks starting to form there in the foundation. And as time progressed, those cracks got bigger. And for me, it, it kind of started with online pornography when I was in college. After college, it turned, it kind of escalated into Craigslist hookups. And then it escalated into escort websites. And all of this was happening while I was, you know, dating and then engaged to be married and then getting married and then having our first child. And all of this uh, philandering and cheating stuff was happening in the background. And these cracks just got bigger and bigger. And eventually in 2015, things kind of reached a breaking point and I got caught. I actually got caught in 2014, but I was able to lie my way out of it. You know, mm -hmm. oh, this never mm -hmm. happened before. It will never happen again. That it's whole like, thing. Yeah. But the second time, I kind of couldn't lie my way out of it. I had been working with a life coach for several years by that point, and she didn't believe me. And my wife didn't believe me. And my life coach at one point said, if you don't share your secrets, you won't get well. And I was, because I was really struggling at that point. And that's when I finally kind of surrendered and let it all out. And it was mm -hmm. devastating for my wife. And I had to go on a journey to find myself and heal myself. And I did that. And it was very difficult, but also very rewarding. And I kind of came out of that over the next several years. And then in 2019, I guess I decided I'm going to write this down. And it took me a long time to finally get the book out. It took me about three years from start to finish. Mm. Uh, I do have a day job as a venture capitalist. And so kind of try to do, fit that in on the side. But either way, an amazing process, a lot of healing, frankly, sure. while I was going through the writing process because I was kind of reliving my entire life in a lot of detail from my mm -hmm. current state of consciousness. And so there was a lot of appreciation of like, oh, this is when this happened. This is maybe why these things happened. And I had to talk to my parents a lot to gather facts and my sister and it's like piecing all this stuff together. It was really mm -hmm. fascinating. So anyway, yeah, I wrote the book. It came out in the summer of 2022. And since then, I feel like this is my responsibility now is to just go out and talk about it and share the messages, share what I learned so that other people can learn from it. Yeah. And your courage, your willingness to put all that down. I mean, none of it's very flattering, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I just wanted to add that because it's so real and so raw, it's so relatable. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But, but what were you going to say? Just that I kind of say something about that towards the end, Jeff. I think it's in the afterward. I say, you know, I'm not proud of what I've done, right. but I am proud of the man that I am today. Right. And I know that it was all of the learning that I got from going through those experiences that helped me arrive at this place where I am today. So yes, it is at times still embarrassing. You know what? <laughs> yeah. I recently started karate class and Ooh. I, my karate teacher read my book and I was like, oh no, <laughs> she knows a lot more about me than she probably wanted to know. <laughs> well, I thought, I thought you did such an, such a good job, like describing, you know, 
how far things went without it becoming voyeuristic or, you know, salacious. Like it, mm-hmm. it didn't feel like you were disrespecting the other people involved. I think you even mentioned that, that you didn't want to pull people into that limelight. It's not their, you know, that's not your job to expose anybody, but just to reveal your own story. And so many memoirs, so many people, I feel like there's so much attention seeking and it just doesn't, I mean, so much that gets put out there doesn't really follow the full arc of the consequences of what happens. Right. And I feel like your book, really your story, the way you tell it and what you've been willing to share isn't, you know, there's obviously all the the shocking sort of juicy details, but boy, it really does rip off the the kind of that fantasy, that sort of belief that you can get away with something like this, that you can that there are no consequences, even if it's in secrecy. That's right. And it really unravels it all and shows where this goes. And I think that's, you use the word cautionary tale. I mean, it really it really serves that purpose so well. And I think it's important. So I just commend uh, you for that. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I just like a shameless short plug here for my the team that helped me with the book. I worked mm-hmm. with a company called Scribe that helps people mm-hmm. self-publish. And they were awesome. And my editor was amazing and really, and I appreciate the compliment of, you know, about treating this subject tactfully, but that was something I had help with as well. Oh Um, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. They were a great, tremendous partner. This, this book would not exist without Scribe. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I do hope, you know, sometimes I've talked about it as, you know, the cautionary tale for young men and women, especially for young men. Because one of the things I talk about, one of the themes that goes through the book is that I'm this young boy who's watching TV and movies and feels like he's learning that to be a man, he needs to make a lot of money, have fast cars, and lots of women. Like that, Mm -hmm. that that Mm -hmm. becomes the mark of a real man. And so I kind of set out on that path and, and then I get those things, but I'm not happy. In fact, I'm kind of miserable because I'm also lying. And you don't feel like a man. No, no. Mm. And I hope that it's almost like the Wizard of Oz scene, you know, where they pull back the curtain and there's the guy with the levers, you know, it's like, I want this to be that for some of these young men who, because our society is still telling them Mm. to be a real man, you've got to make a lot of money. You've got to have fast cars. You know, I guess it's slightly different in different subcultures, you know, in different places, there are different expressions or, or ways to have power in -hmm. a certain community or a certain place. For me, where I was growing up, it seemed like money, cars, and women was the ticket. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think because you did get all of those, your story rings louder, I feel like than, than some, you know, maybe some kid's dad or mom who you know, hasn't left the suburbs, right? <laughs> right. It's it's like a, there's a difference between a warning and like, no, 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 I was there. <laughs> like, let me tell you, I was- I come back was, from the dead, right. That's right. That's right. Like I went to that place mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I've said this, you know, before, I feel like a lot of celebrities go through this. They, and a part of it is just because their life is on display because they're celebrities and that's how we get to know them and under, you know, know what's going on in their life. But, you know, you take this young person who has probably felt like if I hit it big and I make lots of money and I get the fame, I'll be happy. I'll get all the things I want and I'll be happy. And then they get it and then they realize they're still not happy. And it's mm-hmm. very disorienting. And so it's oh, no yeah. wonder 
you know, you see people sinking into addictions or, you know, unhinged behavior, whatever you want to call it. Because when you get to that place and you realize those aren't the things that actually make you happy on a deep level where you're really fulfilled, that's very disorienting. And for me, it was very scary. It was like, oh my gosh, the whole foundation of my life was built on this assumption or set of assumptions or beliefs. And now you're telling me that they were wrong. So like the entire foundation of my life is wrong. That's scary. And I know that it happens to others too. Yeah. And did you feel like you didn't really have a roadmap or like another model to work from once you realized that what you had built everything on wasn't accurate, wasn't was flimsy? I did not feel like I did. I know that they are out there, but they are getting drowned out. Mm. They're just getting drowned out. Mm -hmm. There are positive role models out there. And I'm not a super religious person, but I have a figurine of Jesus on my, on this counter in my bathroom. Um, you know, he in some ways has become a role model, whether, you know, Regardless of my feelings around religion as a concept and all of these things, but like here was a man who was compassionate and strong and in service to his community and to others and all of these things. It's like, so there are role models out there. I just feel like they they get drowned out, right? You don't see that in normal like television, movie, social media. Another one for me, which is, it sounds a little bit silly, but there was a, a moment of time where I had a statue of Superman on my desk, mm -hmm. a little figurine of Superman, because I was like, well, here's a guy who's strong and in service and has integrity and all of these things that I wanted to be when mm -hmm. I was really struggling. And so I love it. Yeah. Like one of the things that happened after, so my book ends, well, the story of that's in the book ends around 2015. But after that, there were still several years of like repairing trust with my wife, rebuilding our relationship and all of these things. And then I went through this phase where I was kind of upset about being a man who had done these things that I was like still embarrassed by and ashamed of. And, and the Me Too movement was happening. Mm. And Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, I forget the sequence of events and when they exactly happened, et cetera. But like there was this moment, you know, this the movie came out, um, Bombshell, I think it was. Anyway, there was a lot of conversation in the public discourse around these predatory practices of these men in positions of power. I was really upset about it. And I was, I was for a minute there, like upset about being one of those men. And then I had a son in 2016 mm. and I realized like, I need to figure out my relationship with masculinity. It's not money, cars, and women. It's something mm. else. What is it? And that's when I was looking for role models and starting to think more about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then that was the work you did after you stopped the bleeding, right? Yeah, that's after right. After all the, after you got, came out of hiding, told all your secrets, started repairing, then you start to really look at yourself for this long-term recovery of what it even means to be a man. You're going back to these fundamentals. Yeah. 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 So, well, yeah. So maybe we could spend just a little time talking about some of what comes up in the book and that you've referenced already, but just the secrecy and how you notice that it 
affect your relationship and the challenge in facing it and getting out from under it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought, so let's rewind the clock. I'm in this fancy career in Silicon Valley (laughs) and on the outside, everything looks great, Mm -hmm. but I'm cheating on my wife. And I think it's a secret. She doesn't know, can't be hurting her, can't be affecting our relationship. Mm-hmm. Of course it was. There was, mm-hmm. it just, anytime there's a secret like that or secrets, it creates that's, it creates separation. And her and I were just getting further and further apart. Now she couldn't quite put her finger on it. To her, it was like, he's working all the time or when he's home, he's on his phone and he's not present, you know. It was all of those things, but it was also that I had these secrets that I was keeping and I was ashamed of that, you know, on some level. I think there were periods where like I I wasn't in touch with that shame and embarrassment. I felt very entitled and I felt like, oh, I'm just doing what men do. I'm just doing, you know, this is okay. I justified Mm -hmm. it to myself. But anyways, creating separation and, and then my wife wound up having an affair This is kind of a a thing that I think surprises people when they find that part of the book. They're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Yeah, a little Mm -hmm. twist. But we were so far apart and she was looking for connection. And so, and that went on for a while. And when that got revealed, it was like, oh, that was kind of the first wake up call, a little bit of a wake up call, tiny, Mm -hmm. tiny, tiny wake up call, not enough to really wake me up. But enough for me is like, oh my gosh, what I'm doing is having an impact and it is Mm -hmm. affecting us. I didn't tell her about my cheating. I didn't think I had to. I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, just keep it a secret. And I worked with, and then we started working with this life coach and I kept it a secret from the life coach for four or five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that blew me away in the book. I was like, (laughs) how did he do that? Keep that secret for so long. You were so committed to the secrecy. I was like, this, we can pretend this never happened. It can just stay buried. Mm -hmm. But what happened? So, and I was on good behavior for a a little while, you know, a couple of years maybe, but then the behavior came back and it wasn't until much, 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 much later, you know, after I had really gone through some of the healing after, frankly, I went through a 12 step program, you know, once I surrendered and started telling my secrets Mm -hmm. and I was like, I have a problem and I can't control myself. I went into a 12-step program called Sexaholics Anonymous, which was amazing and changed my life. But it was during that that I started to understand that one of the things that had driven me back into the behavior was the fact that I was still keeping the secrets. Mm. And the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that I felt around that. And those are very difficult feelings. They're very uncomfortable feelings. And Mm -hmm. so what might a person do to avoid feeling those feelings? They might medicate with pornography or medicate with sex. And now you just perpetuate that cycle. And that is, you know, what led me at least into my addictive cycle. You know, I would cheat or looking at porn and lying about it. And and then I would feel guilty or ashamed or embarrassed about that. And then it would drive me further into that into the behavior. So I'm curious about about this because, and I think you mentioned this before we started recording. Yeah. But you talked about just having 
to have the experience and be face the reality of the possibility that you would be on your own before you could be ready to change. Yes. So in light of that, I'm curious if you think that your wife addressing things earlier on could have had an influence at all on your willingness to keep the secret or do you think that it was just a matter of you needing to be ready and in a place where the stakes were higher? Right, where I was really ready to surrender. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I often have asked this question in a more general sense, like, did I have to hit this rock bottom in order to start really climbing my mountain, mm-hmm. doing my work, finding myself, etc.? I don't know. I don't know if there's anything she could have done because, well, first of all, she's on her own journey. Mm-hmm. And we should come back to that in a second. But, you know, my wounds were so, they were mine and they were inside. And like, she didn't really know they were there. I didn't really know they were there. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if she could have done anything that would have, you know, accelerated that. Or maybe she did. Actually, if you think about it that way, right? She went and had an affair. That was like a little wake up call. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, knock, knock. Hey, something's not right here. Mm-hmm. Pay attention. Something's not right here. And that's when we found this life coach who ultimately was the catalyst for all of these other things. You know, people sometimes ask me, like, how did you guys stay together after everything that happened? And mm-hmm. I think a big part of it was taking responsibility. You know, each of us taking responsibility for Mm -hmm. our side of the creation and saying like her saying in that moment, her not saying I'm a victim, it was all his fault. He was cheating, 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 whatever, but saying, wait a minute, I'm not a victim. I was getting something out of this relationship. Now I can make a conscious choice if I want to stay in that relationship or not. But before I kind of wasn't making a conscious choice. I was being driven off of my own programming in the same way that Jason was being driven off of his programming. And so like elevating all of this stuff now into our consciousness and then being able to make a more conscious choice or conscious choices going forward, that was a huge part. I mean, it continues to be a big part of the work that we continue to do. Yeah, that's incredibly courageous on her part to do that because it'd be such an easy thing to hide behind. I mean, you you gave her enough material to hide behind for a lifetime. That's right. If she wanted to and to really look at it and say, and I think it's important to delineate between like her taking responsibility for her own life and how she shows up in the world and in the relationship is not the same as taking responsibility for your choices. Correct. Right. Because I think a lot of the times people are afraid to look at that kind of, because they're just like, I don't want you to think that like, because I was attracted to someone who's emotionally unavailable, that that gave you license to do what you did. I don't think you're saying that at all. And I don't think that's what the process was, but I think there's a fear there. A lot of people I work with who want to stay in this place of no, like I did, like I have nothing to do with any of this ever. And it's like, right. You have nothing to do with like his choices or his wounds but you are in a relationship. So now you have to look at how are you showing up in this dynamic together. And when you have both people taking responsibility for how they show up in the relationship and the way they impact each other, which is work that you do later on, man, it really does make the relationship much more conscious. And both people can feel more secure because it's like, we're both choosing to be in this. Yeah. And I feel like it's, there's this book out there that I really like called Seat of the Soul. 
and it's by an author called Gary Gu- named Gary Zukov. And he says in the book that his sense is that what will create a strong marriage now and in the future, because marriage happened for different reasons in the past, but now and into the future would be a mutual commitment to each other's own spiritual growth. You know, each individual committing to their own growth and committing to help the other in their growth. And so when you think about it that way, it kind of reframes what this definition of relationship is. You know, what is a relationship? Mm. It's not just this, a convenient thing, which you then decide to break apart if one partner does something you don't like or that hurts your feelings. Mm-hmm. It's like, you did something that hurt my feelings. I'm going to take ownership of my side of it. You need to take ownership of your side of it. We can learn something from this together and grow together. Yeah. The the hinge point, it seems like in your story, because it took so long to build up to that, is really like the decision to come clean. You talk about it like you're sitting on the edge of a cliff. Yeah. And it was really a stark decision point in the way, the way you talk about it, because you'd protected it for so long and the distance was just growing and growing. Would you say for you that that like that was the tipping point was standing in the truth versus just protecting everything. I mean, is that, is that where everything changed was with, with opening up about your full story, being totally honest, disclosing everything? Yes. And I would summarize all of that sentiment in one word, surrender. I had to surrender. I had to let go, let go of the lies, let go mm-hmm. of the shame. I mean, that took years. But like, let go of the lies, eventually let go of the shame. Eventually, I had to let go of the person that I was Mm -hmm. so that I could become a new person. And so, yes, I do believe that this is the hinge point. You know, this is the moment in the story. It's that surrender. And I feel like so often we are all like, and this still happens to me today too, right? I don't want to imply that like, I've been on this journey and I'm perfect now. It's, it's not like that. It's constant. But we get so wrapped up in our stories and who we are. And we'll say something like, well, that's just who I am. It's like, no, 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 no. You're not, you know, we get identified with these parts of ourselves or with our stories instead of surrendering and saying like, I'm not this, I'm not that, I just am. And let me surrender and let go of all of these things. And it turns out when you do that, you sink into this place of peacefulness, but it's very scary to let go of all those labels and all those identities and all of those stories because we feel like that's who we are. So that's Um, what you were holding on to when you say, I couldn't surrender. I was protecting my secrets. I sat in these coaching sessions for four or five years. And even after my wife had disclosed her own affair, I still wasn't willing to come clean with all my stuff. Like you were protecting that belief about yourself. You were protecting the image of yourself. Like what were you holding on to? What, what was so terrifying to let go of? Well, probably a lot of it, maybe all of it, but definitely her, you know, she, yeah. you know, going back to what Jody said earlier, which I realized I never really circled back to, but I had to be comfortable being alone. And that was very scary. Jody, it looks like so you want to say something, you, so I'm pausing. Yeah, when you say be comfortable, I'm, I'm guessing it's more along the lines of being willing 
to deal with the discomfort of being alone and the prospect of not making it together with your wife. That's right. Like just being comfortable being alone. Mm-hmm. That's a scary thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially for me, you know, I, I shouldn't imply it's scary for everyone. It was scary for me. When I was a child, some traumatic things happened to me. My father left when I was fairly young. My mother, I had a stepfather, but I was never really close to him. And he had some anger, I say issues. And, you know, I was afraid of him, frankly. Mm. I was scared of him. And then my mother went in, into a pretty dark depression for yeah. many, many years. And she was either in hospitals or when she was home, she was very heavily medicated and kind of distant, not emotionally present. And this is all happening when I'm, you know, a little boy. And it was scary. You know, I didn't understand how scary it was. Oh, and then, you know, my mom, as part of her depression, at times would threaten to commit suicide. Mm. And, you know, for any young child, this is very scary. Totally. So as I grew into an adult, on the outside, I looked like a man. I had titles and jobs and employees reporting to me and money and cars and a house and a mortgage, blah, blah, blah. But on the inside, there were still parts of me that were still a boy and frankly, a scared boy, you know, confused boy and maybe angry boy. But like all of that stuff, we talked earlier about secrets and how like they will keep you sick. They will keep you in those behaviors. But there's also these secrets, which you don't even know you have. So there's like the conscious secrets we don't tell, Mm -hmm. but then there's the secrets that we're keeping from ourselves you know, traumas from our past that so many of us have. It happened mm-hmm. in so many different ways and so many of us have them. And and can I just and, say real quick, Jason, yeah. like, and don't you think that, and I've seen this in my own life and certainly with folks I've worked with, which is we write stories around those injuries or secrets or wounds to keep us from having to look at them. Yeah. You know, to justify them, to just pass them off as normal or avoid them or laugh about them. But a lot of them really organize the way we show up in the world. And I love that you're creating that distinction between, or not just just including that rather is maybe the better way to say it. Like there's the really behavioral secrets of stuff that we do that we need to become clean with that create shame and guilt and distance in our relationships where we're violating our own values. But there's also a lot of stuff that may not even be our choice or fault that happened to us that impact us that we don't want to face or are just so uncomfortable with or don't know what to do with. So we we create scripts and ideas and beliefs and things around them and won't look at them. So then we just go through life on autopilot, just hurting and hurting others. That's exactly right. And what I would add to that, Jeff, is that it's not only that we don't want to touch the pain or something like that. A lot of times we don't even know it's there. Sure. Right. How many times have you heard a story about someone in their 30s, 40s, 50s who remembers some traumatic incident from their childhood that had been buried there for decades. And that thing buried in there is affecting your behavior. It's affecting how you're showing up in the world, but you don't even understand that that's what's driving you. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I feel like there's a lot here. We're kind of opening lots of different, different channels (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and doorways. Yeah. Did I, did I answer your question still, Jody? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, very much so. And I like the I had an experience reading your book where you were talking about 
meeting with the life coach for one of the first few times and and how you were telling your story and and she you weren't getting the typical response from her that she yeah. wasn't treating you like you were a victim <laughs> yeah. but everybody else had you had so yes. much support from friends and family members when they heard your side yeah. they were like oh yeah wrong end of the stick poor yeah. you that's you poor not thing. right yeah, i uh-huh. can't believe she did that mm-hmm. right right <laughs> and uh and as i was reading through that, like a particular circumstance that is currently in my life came to my mind. And I realized that I have been keeping that secret from myself. Uh, So this is a little bit of a different level, but, but I have been telling the story to people around me. Like I have been a victim. So you, so you can get that victim response. Yeah. Yeah. You poor thing. Oh my gosh. I can't believe Jeff did that. Uh, right. <laughs> no, I'm right. just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I can't believe but, you said that, Jody. Jeez. I know. I know. We'll talk more after. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jason. <laughs> but yeah, it really caused me to start reflecting and make a decision so that when the context of the circumstance comes up, which occasionally it does, and people have questions about what happened. I am determined to talk about it with accountability in ways that say, well, this happened and I chose this instead of poor me. I just thought that was so profound. And the beginning of your starting to look at, at your life in those terms, which ultimately led to the decision you made on the edge of the cliff and, and the growth and everything since. Yeah, I mean the vic- that victim energy is so intoxicating. It's Man. so alluring because we get so much sympathy and we get attention and we get all of these things that our ego wants mm-hmm. and we're human. We are mm-hmm. human, right? Like let's not forget um, <laughs> <laughs> like we are trying to elevate our consciousness, but we are all human and we do all respond to these things and it mm-hmm. feels good when you get sympathy. Oh yeah. Um, but it's more powerful as you're fine, you know, as you're mm-hmm. saying that, you know, to take ownership and say, wait, 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 I'm not a victim. This is happening to me for a reason. I may not have caused that thing to happen, but I yeah. created the conditions in my life for it to happen to me. Why did I do that? What am I getting out of this? How am I benefiting from it? Because I feel really strongly that we get out of life what we really want. Okay. Mm. And I feel like people say that. I feel like most of the time they're talking about what we want on a conscious level. So like, you know, I knew this guy at one point is like, I want a job. (laughs) This was like 10 years ago. It's like, I want a job. And I was like, great, get a job. You know, it's like, how's it, what kind of job, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Years later, you still didn't have a job. And he was like, I want a job. And I, I just remember thinking, no, you don't. Yeah. And you know what? And it's okay if you don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're kind of lying. Let's be honest with what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah you're kind of lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. You're lying to right. me, but you're lying to yourself. And I saw it all like really clearly. It was interesting. And I realized like we get what we really want on the inside. And sometimes we don't know what that is. And the only way to learn what it is, is by what's happening in our life. Because if that oh, thing is happening, awesome. there's a part of you inside that wanted that. Right. For a reason, maybe to learn a lesson, something like that. But Mm -hmm. 
Well, yeah, and you talked about in the in your story, you talked about how, you know, your vices and your, you know, just all your all the damage that you were doing, all the things you were caught up in became those entry points for you to explore deeper. And in some ways you, you know, you could have stayed in the victim position of my childhood or my wife's affair or these other things like that when you obviously had done a lot more in terms of betraying the marriage than she had done if you want to like really rack up points here. Are you keeping a scorecard here, Jeff? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. But what I I'm saying is, is you could you could have very much hidden behind that and, and not looked at it stuff, but all of those things that you were involved in that you that you had struggled with became those doors that you walk through. And I th- I think that they and, and it sounds like she did the same thing, which I think is a really hard message for people that have been betrayed who didn't ask for the betrayal, mm-hmm. didn't cause it. It's not their responsibility. But, you know, I know I know that there's sometimes people can misunderstand this almost like, well, why would I invite that into my life? Or how, right. are you saying I'm responsible for it? And the answer is no, you're not responsible for somebody else's choices. But there's an opportunity here to walk through that door and learn and understand what you're needing to learn from and grow from this experience. And it's like there's no wasted material here, right? It's, it's that, that's all. A, oh, wow. I've never heard it said that way. I, that's, I think that's brilliant. There's no wasted material. Like I still, you know, to this day, I still talk with the same life coach every week. Yeah. And my transgressions now are different. You know, mm. I'm not cheating or t- anything like that. But it can be something as subtle as like trying to, you know, being a little too controlling with my kids. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I'm I'm afraid that if they don't do this or that, they won't do this or that. Right. Or whatever, right. you know. And so then there's this tendency to like grip the wheel and be like, oh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna steer this. I'm gonna steer this ship, mm-hmm. right? I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna steer the boat. And that turns out to be a subtle transgression mm-hmm. because it doesn't come from a place of surrendering, letting go having some faith and trust, approaching it with that different energy, right? And so those transgressions to this day become entry points for the work that I do with my life coach or if I'm journaling or conversations with my wife, because where's that coming from? This need to control something that's happening in my life. Usually control comes from fear. I'm afraid of something, so I got to grab the wheel. And you know what? When I was a kid, my environment was really unpredictable, quite unstable, and I had to start creating control around myself. I had to grab the wheel. And so that's a comfortable place for me. And I'm still, you know, this is part of my work in real time. You know, I'm trying to let go of this more and more. So yeah, all of these transgressions that we all have are actually, (laughs) it sounds weird, but they're beautiful. Because they give us an entry point. If you didn't have them, I don't know, you'd be perfect maybe. Um, but like, <laughs> if you didn't have them, and there have been moments in my life where I feel like I haven't had them for whatever reason, I'm still keeping the transgressions buried or whatever. And then it, there's like not enough material to work with on your climb. Yeah. Mm. And so, you know, when they arrive, it's like, oh, thank you here's something I'm doing wrong or whatever becomes an entry point. Can you describe the difference between how you felt carrying all these secrets and holding on to so much control and so much fear versus how you live and feel every day now? I think you're asking this because you feel it because I'm feeling it right now in this moment. 
Yeah, I am. That's a great observation. I am. I am feeling it right now. There is a lightness. It just feels so good when you're in that space. Mm-hmm. When you're carrying secrets or shame or embarrassment or guilt or any of these things, anger, those are heavy. You know, those mm-hmm. are like heavy burdens to carry and can be exhausting. Mm-hmm. But you don't even realize no. how exhausting it is until you start to let go of them. And then there's a lightness and it feels it feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can breathe and move again. Yeah. Wow. Right. Yeah. So I like that you named that there was a tangible difference, that there is a feel that like, Mm -hmm. and I felt it too. And that's why I asked, I'm like, man, this doesn't feel like someone who's burdened down with Mm -hmm. things. And I just want people who are hearing this to understand that if you're feeling weighed down or burdened down, whether it's by some big, you know, transgression that you need to confess, or even just looking at your own patterns and understanding why you keep ending up in the same place, there's just freedom and, and there's lightness in that. There's you don't have to live burdened with that. That's and right. That, conf- that confronting it and opening up and naming it and talking about it is is the way out. I completely agree. And you know, it, it reminds me of something one of you guys brought up earlier around in the book I talk about it felt like I was walking off of a cliff. There was this fear. Like let's say someone's out there and they have something that they've been keeping a secret. And there's this fear, you know, if I tell my secret, my spouse is going to leave me or something, you know, mm-hmm. like, or whatever. And that's, that is very scary, but it turns out the consequence of keeping that secret are worse. Yeah. They're kind of worse. And, and one way to look at that is like, in that specific example, you're in a relationship with someone else, but that person is in a relationship with not the real you. They're in a relationship with someone they think you are. So you're like right. control, you're doing, it's a little bit controlling. I don't want to like, not, don't say this to like shame someone or make them feel bad about themselves. I just mean you're kind of controlling in that mm-hmm. scenario because mm-hmm. you're, you know, this person is in a relationship with who they think you are. And that's not, in the long run, that's going to be a really hard relationship. And so finding a place where you can share your secrets, it doesn't have to necessarily be with your loved one if it's a secret that's going to affect them. It could be another trusted place. Like to start there first, if you Mm -hmm. need to. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it just starts in your journal. Yeah. Or some kind of support group or a counselor or a therapist or a coach, but starting the process of letting that out. And it does feel, at least to me, you know, when I was telling my wife, all of these things, it felt like I was stepping off of a cliff and I didn't know where the bottom was. I didn't know what was down there. It was very scary. But once I did, it felt so much lighter, you know, so much more free. And Mm -hmm. I want that for people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it's predictable. And like you said, if, if what you're trying to predict is whether you'll be able to keep someone in your life, you'll never get there. But it's predictable. The freedom is predictable and available to everybody, no matter what consequences may have to do. You know, somebody else may have to make a choice in response to whatever you share, but you can absolutely have that freedom that you're describing. Everybody can. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, again, it kind of changes the idea of like what that relationship is, being willing to let it go. This is very, sounds very count, you know, uh, not counterproductive, 
Count, intuitive, counterintuitive. Counterintuitive, thank mm-hmm. you. So it feels very counterintuitive, but in the, in a weird way, I feel like one of the things that makes my relationship with my wife so strong right now is that I don't need her and she doesn't need me. So we don't have our hooks into each other. We don't have an agenda on each other. I need you to love me. So I'm not going to tell you the truth about this thing that I'm afraid to say, because uh, if I do, you might not love me anymore. And I need you to love me. So I'm going to keep lying to you. Mm -hmm. I don't need her and she doesn't need me. And that becomes very powerful for a relationship. Yeah. There's like a respect of the other person as an individual being able to make their own choices instead of being controlled by another person's secrets or by their feelings or by... And it's not, I know you're not saying we don't influence each other or feel bonded or close to each other, but it's like, if it really is going to be between telling the truth and being real with this person or having to let them go, you're like, I can't control the outcome of that. So I'm just going to have to stay real with, with each other. That's just what, that becomes like the bigger priority. Yeah. And I I feel like it also shows up in more subtle ways. We've been talking about like secrets and and things that could blow up the relationship and like kind of things that are pretty yeah, far on, right. you know, deal breakers on the end of the spectrum. But there's more subtle things. Like I know in my relationship, this was the case many, many years ago. Like I wanted to have more sex in our relationship than my wife did. And when I, I've moved beyond that now. And when I reflect back on it, part of what helped me move beyond it was recognizing that it wasn't sex that I wanted. I needed attention. I needed to feel loved. Mm-hmm. I needed these things from her. And I was kind of creating this emotional burden on her to help me feel safe and help me feel needed and wanted. That's not her responsibility. There's a word for that. That's called mothering, right? <laughs> That's being a mom. She doesn't want me to be her son. She wants me to be her husband her partner. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of mature and grow and start to give myself that love and give myself that attention so that I wasn't seeking it from her. So a more subtle thing than telling a secret that might blow up a relationship, but a powerful thing, certainly in our household and in our relationship, because as I stopped putting that emotional burden on her to give me what I needed. And I started giving it to myself. It freed her energy up. Now she didn't have to carry that burden. Now she can be lighter. Now she can relax into her more natural energy. And that's been super powerful for us. Well, and I'm guessing too, counterintuitively, be more free to give. That's right. Yeah. Because it wasn't being, it wasn't so needed. That's right. It's like, instead of taking me trying Mm -hmm. to take, it's like, if someone's always trying to take from you, you don't want to be generous with them (laughs) because you're kind of, because you're protecting yourself. You're like, whoa, whoa, I got to protect myself. But when someone doesn't need anything from you, you want to be generous with them, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Or they signal it in a way that like still honors your choice to give it or not give it. Like it's, it's like, it's, I don't think it's about not having needs or not like expressing like a longing or a desire, but it doesn't come with the, but if you don't, I won't be okay. Right. Like that, 
there's a pressure there that I think we can sniff out that almost feels like controlling, manipulative, like almost like a, it can almost, what's the word? It's like an ultimatum to a degree. Like right. if, if I don't get this from you, then something bad's going to happen versus I'd like some time with you or let's, you know, let's be close or you're important to me or this or that. And then, but really freeing up both people to have choice and agency and freedom to come and go and move and have it be flexible. That's right. To move, to move in and out of that space very organically. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, rewind 10 years and my ultimatum was if you won't have sex with me, I'll go have sex with someone else. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so that's, and of, you know, I didn't say it that way. I just lied about it, but that was how I justified it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But again, it wasn't sex that I needed. I had that little boy inside of me needed to feel loved. Right. You know, I'll needed- outsource my attention needs somewhere. Mm-hmm. If you, right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. This is great. I love, I love this. If we can kind of maybe end with this, unless you have another question. No, I, no, let's do this. I love this quote that you, you shared in the book that opened one of your chapters from Danny Watts that says, mm-hmm. as children, we are afraid of the dark. As adults, we are afraid of the light. Man, that one just hit me right in the chest. I just love that. And can you say more about, you told the story about that before we jumped on the the recording here, but tell me what that means to you based on your experience. Yeah. Well, as I went on my journey, I really started to see, there was a moment in time where I really saw the world in terms of dark and light, Mm -hmm. this like energetic battle, you know, if I were to get silly, it'd be like Star Wars, you know, there was the dark <laughs> and the light and and like those guys were onto something, you know. Um, <laughs> but I really did start to see the world in terms of dark and light. And I could see that the pornography was like a portal into the dark, into a place of lies, into a place of secrets, into a place of taking, exploiting these women in these porn videos. That was a dark energy, you know, philandering, escorts, all of that just felt, started to feel like really dark energy, which I only started to feel as I moved away from it into the light, which was truth and integrity and love and compassion for myself, love for myself, right? I had to start giving myself all of those things And so the world became very much this like, there's the dark and there's the light. And so, yeah, when I read, this was a quote from a friend who who had written a book. And when I read his book and I read that quote, it hit me in the chest too. Yeah. It was so true because when I was metaphorically stepping off that cliff in my psyche, in my mind, trying to let go of my past where there was a lot of dark, it was so scary. And it was like, what are you afraid of? You know, I'll like paraphrase a session with the life coach. It's like, well, what are you afraid of? And it's like, all I see is light and I don't know what it is. I don't have a relationship with it. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's going to take me. But all I know is I'm afraid of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And when you let go of the dark, which really is trying to grab us all the time, right? For sure. You need this. You need this. You're entitled to this you should get this. Like it's just out there everywhere. 
websites telling men that they should have affairs because they deserve it. I mean, th- whatever, the whole thing, right. it's all out there. And anyway, yeah. I love, uh, I love that idea that like all you could see was light and that and that was, don't, don't know what to do with so. it. But it's like, that is the safest place to be. That's the most free place to be. Yeah. But when you're not used to it, it seems very scary. Yeah. It's like turning on the lights in a dark room and it's disorienting. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But it's where you live now. And that came through loud and clear in your story. And I know you're still on your journey and none of us are finished, but we're just so grateful that you were willing to let us and so many people peek into your life and Mm -hmm. learn from it and just be invited into that light. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me and, and, and using your platform to share these messages. I hope it's helpful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of good, hard-earned wisdom in what you've written and what you've shared. So thank you. No, no problem. Thank you. We want to thank Jason for joining us on the podcast. And you can find information on his book, Silicon Valley Poor Star, in the show notes, as well as his website. I did have a chance to actually meet Jason in person at a men's retreat in California that we attended. And... uh, It was great. He is the real deal and had a chance to interact with him and visit with him about lots of different things and really felt his genuineness and his sincerity and the hard work that he's done to be a different man. And I was very inspired by him and grateful to share this interview with all of you. And of course, we have a free course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. If you want to download that, you can click on the link in the show notes and we'll send it to you right away. It's a course to help you learn how to rebuild trust or heal from broken trust and couples resources as well. Click on the link in the show notes. We'll send it to you immediately. Thanks everyone for joining us and we'll see you in the next episode.